Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 13. 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. We'll be reading the entire chapter beginning in verse 1. Let's give attention now to God's holy Word. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. But we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but, then, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening, let's continue our exposition of 1 Corinthians 13, where we pick up in verse 4 with these words of the Apostle Paul, love does not envy. We saw previously that love suffers long and is kind, and now Paul moves to the next stage of this description of love, true Christian love for God and for others, and speaking here specifically in terms of our love toward others, although we'll look at both angles, he says, love does not envy. What is envy? What is envy? What's Paul talking about here? Envy, sometimes called the green-eyed monster, or maybe that's jealousy, but it's Basically the same type of thing, envy. Envy can be defined, as we'll define it this evening, as covetous ill will toward the good of others. When we have a covetous ill will toward the good of others. When we're not rooting for other people, but we're rooting against them. They have things that we want, we covet what they have, but it's not just that we covet what they have, because then we'd just go out and try to buy what they have. You know, if, they, if somebody's driving a Mustang and I want a Mustang, well, I'll just go try to get my hands on a Mustang. That doesn't mean that I resent the guy with the Mustang. Maybe, maybe I like his Mustang and I want one of my own, but envy crosses the line to where now I not only covet the guy with the Mustang, I not only covet his Mustang, but I have an ill will toward him. He doesn't deserve that. Why is he driving around? Love doesn't parade itself. What's going on here? So I have this negative ill will, this bitterness, this resentment towards someone who's, who has something that I want. 
And so any type of good thing that's enjoyed by other people that I want, I'm upset about it. And I find, as we'll see, I find all kinds of excuses to justify my envy in trying to impugn their character and say why it's not right, they shouldn't have this, I should have it, it's not fair. But essentially, when we envy a person, we have grief in their joy and joy in their grief. So if something good happens to them, if there's somebody in the workplace and we don't like this person and we think that they're just a cancer in the office, a cancer in the workplace, and they get the promotion over us and, well, maybe they're related to the boss or, you know, we begin to get upset, we begin to get envious, we're, we're hoping for them to somehow blow it so that they can lose their position and we can be exalted to the position that we think we deserve. So we have grief in other people's joy when good things happen to another person and it makes us upset. And when something bad happens to another person and secretly, of course we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to look, we wouldn't want to display this publicly and look like an envious person, but secretly we're kind of happy about this. You know, we feel some joy. That person was brought down a few notches. That's where they deserve to be. This is envy. You'd see an example of this in Genesis 26, verses 12 through 15. As Isaac is interacting with the local Canaanite community. Genesis 26, verse 12, Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines, these aren't actually Canaanites, but they're basically in the same vicinity. They're ungodly foreigners. The Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. So they go around, find all the wells that were dug by Abraham, and they fill them with dirt because they're envious of the prosperity of this wealthy, godly man, Isaac. They don't like the fact that God's blessed him with wealth, and so they essentially are uh, terrorists. They go around ruining the source of water for Isaac's family and for his servants. So this is an example of envy, this green-eyed monster, this covetous ill will toward the good of others. That was our first question. Second question, what sorts of people are we tempted to envy? What sorts of people are we tempted to envy? And there are a number of ways that we could answer this, but again, we're just trying to Uh, get our juices flowing here to understand the sin of envy as we begin to build on this foundation of our text. So think of it this way. You could envy your superiors, your equals, or your inferiors. So we have examples in the Scripture, Psalm 106, verse 16. We've sung this in recent weeks where the people of Israel envied Moses and Aaron. They envied those whom God put over them, they envied authority figures, those who, who had a higher position than they had, they envied that position. In fact, not only did the people envy Aaron, but Aaron and Miriam envied Moses and his position at one point in the book of Numbers, and Miriam was struck with leprosy temporarily as a chastisement for that because they said, look, Moses, uh, God's spoken through us, just as he's spoken through you and God has to remind them of the uniqueness of Moses, that God spoke to him, as it were, face to face. There was something unique in redemptive history between God and Moses. So, so you can see here the hierarchy and the envy taking place. The people envy Aaron and Moses. Aaron himself envies Moses. So we can envy our superiors. And we can think to ourselves, well, why is this person in this position? Why was this person chosen instead of me? Uh, if everybody knew what I know about this person, they never would have elected him a deacon or an elder or something like that. Or in the workplace, uh, we see what we think is nepotism and 
inequities and unfair business practices of hiring and promoting one person over another, and we can become envious so that we actually want Moses to fall. We want Aaron to be brought down a notch. We envy them. We can also envy equals. Cain envied Abel. Cain brought the fruit of the ground and offered it before the Lord as an offering of worship, but God had asked for an animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, just like the one when he killed the animal and clothed Adam and Eve in the skins of that sacrificial animal. That's what God had commanded. And Abel brought the required sacrifice and he brought it in faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Cain was an unbeliever, but Abel brought his biblical sacrifice in a biblical way by faith, trusting in the Messiah who was to come, to whom that sacrifice was pointing. And God accepted Abel and his sacrifice. God did not accept Cain and his sacrifice, his offering of the fruit of the ground. And so Cain was angry, and really it doesn't mention envy, but obviously he was envious of the acceptance that the righteous Abel had in the sight of God, and he ended up murdering his brother Abel. Joseph's brothers similarly were envious of their brother, their equal. He was their younger brother, but technically there's no chain of command among the the ages of brothers, and so Joseph was their equal. These ungodly, unconverted older brothers resented the fact that Joseph was invested with this preeminence among the brethren, and they thought it was unfair, but the indications of the text are that although perhaps there was some favoritism, it seems like Joseph was a pretty godly guy, and these people were pretty ungodly. So it's possible that Jacob simply identified that this is his godliest son, and he invested him with that responsibility of keeping watch over the other brothers to make sure that they weren't up to a, a bunch of shenanigans. And so Joseph basically reports to his father that his brothers are up to it again, and they get angry, and they're envious of their brother Joseph and the coat of many colors or the, uh, the long sleeve coat, depending on how you translate it, this picture of authority and favor that Joseph had. So they threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. That was envy. We see as well in the life of the patriarchs, you see Rachel, the, uh, the, one, of two, one of Jacob's two wives. He married Rachel and Leah. And Rachel and Leah eventually get into this sort of competition of having children. And Rachel, because Leah had had more children, Rachel envied her. And they go back and forth. You can read about that in the book of Genesis. There's envy. There's competition there. There's resentment and bitterness. And you can see even in the life of Daniel that he had, although he was in in some sense exalted above these various officials in the land of Babylon, so maybe you could view him as a superior, but in a sense, Daniel's co-workers in Babylon, these fellow civil officials, the satraps and the governors, they conspired against him because they envied him, and that's what led to the whole business of the, uh, the lion's den. Daniel prayed and was, was uh, thrown into the lion's den. They conspired against him in envy. We can also envy our inferiors, people where God has put us in a position higher than others, and like Saul, envied David because the young women were singing the song about David's exploits on the battlefield, that Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his ten thousands, and so Saul was envious of David and tried to kill him on multiple occasions because he felt like David, though he was his, his inferior, David was creeping up. David was going to challenge his authority and his superiority. And so he, he was bitter and envious toward David. You can see the same thing in this, the book of Esther with Haman, who was just obsessed with his own ego and his own exaltation in the realm, in the kingdom. And Mordecai would not bow to Haman. And without getting into all the details, Haman just couldn't deal with the fact that Mordecai would not bow down and kiss the dirt in his presence. And so Haman concocted a scheme to murder Mordecai and the rest of the Jews. It's an example of envy. So God can put you higher than someone and yet you're still envying them for one reason or another. 
And uh, as in Haman's case, it often doesn't end well. Now, we, we can envy, and we're tempted to envy all kinds of people in these categories. Another category that's helpful is we can be tempted to envy the righteous or the wicked. So in the Scriptures, as I mentioned with Cain, 1 John tells us that the reason that Cain hated and envied his brother Abel was that Abel was righteous and acceptable before God. He was justified and sanctified as a believer. He was right with God. He was a a doer of righteousness. He brought a righteous sacrifice. And so Cain resented that. He hated Abel. And John uses that as a paradigm for why the world who hated Christ hates the people of Christ. He hate, they hate the righteous. They resent the acceptance that the righteous have with God and their, their godly living. Also, you can see that, that there are a number of examples of this. In Isaac's life, we read where the Philistines are envying Isaac because of the blessing of God upon his life. So you can, you can envy the righteous. You can also envy the wicked. Uh, Asaph in Psalm 73, famously, as we've been singing in the service already, Asaph was tempted to envy the wicked, seeing the prosperity of all these haters of God, these unbelievers around him. They're not denying themselves and taking up their cross. They're not killing sin. They're not battling the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're not being chastened by the Lord and disciplined as true sons. These are ungodly people, and yet they're wealthy, they're comfortable, they have what appears to be an easy life, and Asaph begins to envy them. And he says, I almost fell full-fledged into that envy of the wicked. So, so these are some types of people that we may be tempted to envy. Thirdly, we ask, what sorts of things are we tempted to envy? What sorts of things might we be tempted to to envy, or, or what sorts of things might prompt us to envy another person? Often we speak of envy, the object of envy is the person rather than the thing. But either way, what are the things that prompt this envy? Well, it could be money. That, that's an obvious one. Somebody has more money than we do, and perhaps that's reflected in their standard of living, their quality of life, uh, the car they drive, the shoes they wear, the, the clothing they wear, the job they have. There, there are many ways, and, and that's why later Paul is actually going to say, love does not parade itself. You've got to be really careful that you're not provoking envy by showing off what God has done in your life, and that actually ends up promoting envy. Again, we'll get to that, Lord willing, in a future sermon. But we can envy people because of their money, their income, their wealth, And we can begin to say, well, they don't deserve that. That was just an inheritance. They didn't work for that. And here I am working like a dog day in and day out and paid like a dog as well. You know, it's just not fair. We begin to have this negative resentment toward other people. We can resent or envy people because of their power. We already kind of alluded to that. Their power, their influence, their position. We can envy people because of their beauty, their outward attractiveness, We can envy people because of the honor and the reputation that they have versus the reputation that we have. You can see how many of these things really come down to the issue of comparing ourselves with other people. Rather than thinking about what we deserve, I'm getting ahead of myself, but thinking about what we deserve and where God has saved us and blessed us and all that He's done for us. And uh, it's like the, the child who gets sneakers for his birthday and he loves the sneakers they're great and then he goes back you know maybe he was on a vacation he goes back to school and all of a sudden he realizes all the other students have so-called better shoes more expensive ones and begins to look at his shoes and doesn't appreciate them so much I mean that that's actually almost brings a tear to the eye it's very sad but that's our sinful nature at work really spoiling the good gifts of God and the good gifts of others in our lives because we constantly compare ourselves to others. And as I said, there are many areas in which we do this. Some others would include we envy somebody because of the pleasure and ease with which they appear to live their lives, the goods and possessions that they possess, the spouse that God has given them, 
either in terms of maybe we're single and we, we are envious of people that have a spouse or maybe we're married and, and we have all kinds of problems and we start to envy, well, other people have so much of a better marriage than I do and we envy people because they have children and we don't or their children are doing better in school or in life, so to speak, than our children. And we begin to have this sort of envy where, again, we can be provoked by other people parading themselves. I I just have to say this again, be careful. It's one thing to share and update on your life, but I need to be careful. We all need to be careful that we're not sharing information that's going to provoke envy. That's an area where we need to love the brethren and not put a stumbling block before God's people. And we just be being discreet about the things that God does in our lives and how we appreciate them. We don't want, in other words, if, if somebody boasts about their tennis shoes, and that can make somebody else feel uncomfortable about shoes that they thought were great in the first place, but now they're starting to wonder. And, and just let's be careful with that. And let's not compare ourselves to other people constantly. This can be true also of spiritual gifts and graces. We can look at other people and say, wow, that person is so godly and blameless in their Christian life and they've got it all together and look at me. And, and, and deep down, if somebody like that, who maybe actually prompts our conscience at times when we see people, and it may be different people in different areas, right, in the congregation, different people have different strengths and weaknesses and where they have a strength, we're pricked in our conscience Ooh, I should I should really be striving more zealously in that area. And then when that person is brought down a notch and falls in that area, we need to be careful that we don't have a sense of deep down a sense of joy. Well, okay, now now I don't have to worry about the the conscience pricking nature of that person's Christian example. So we can envy all kinds of different people regarding all kinds of different things. Now I don't need to tell you that in society as Romans 1 tells us in our series we're going to get to, our society is full of envy. Full of envy, as Romans 1 puts it. And so in terms of politics, you have envy just almost institutionalized in terms of the way we view our society, the way we're taught to think through political campaigns and advertisements and pundits. And so we envy people because of their class. One class envies another class, or we envy people because the geographic location that they're from, and and there are these sort of geographic rivalries, and we can envy people because of their gender or because of their ethnicity. We can begin to have a bitter resentment and an ill will toward people for all of these various reasons, and we need to be very careful. This is satanic. This is the sign that Satan is active in a society when there is systemic envy. Because, of course, as we'll see later, Satan originally fell through his own pride and his own ambition. I will be like the Most High. He envied God's superior position and reached out for equality with God, if not superiority over God. And envy is right there at the beginning, at the at the is really the essence of Satan's playbook as he's tempting and influencing mankind. So we've got to be very careful. These various things that we're tempted to, to envy people because of. Now, fourthly, what is envy's root and fruit? In other words, what, what's the sort of sin that would produce envy and what are the sorts of sins that envy then produces? Well, the root of envy, I think we can describe in these terms, arrogant, self-righteous, self-deifying entitlement. So the root of envy, the reason that I'm bitter toward the person who enjoys some type of lifestyle or some type of uh, superior position over me, the reason I envy the person over that is because I think in my arrogance that I should have that. I think in my self-righteousness that I deserve that, or certainly they don't deserve it. I deserve to be on an equal plane with that person. My arrogance is also shown in the fact that I'm not content with God's providence. 
in raising up some and putting down others and dividing up all of the earthly pleasures and treasures according to His own perfect wisdom, God is the one who has wisely divvied out all the earthly blessings across the board in His providence. And so who am I to think that I know better than God knows as to what my income should be or what somebody else's income should be or uh, what I should look like, my, my, my beauty and attractiveness versus somebody else. God is the all-wise creator. He divvies it up according to His perfect wisdom and His perfect plan. But you see, we become arrogant. We think we know. We need to, we need to be the experts who redistribute all of these benefits and all of these things. And again, there's a self-righteousness there, an entitlement, I deserve to have this, why can't I have it? And, and we, we ultimately deify ourselves as those who deserve these things, those who know better than God. And this entitlement, again, is systemic in our society, chronic discontentment, chronic discontentment. It's never enough. Our eyes are never satisfied It's never enough. No matter what pleasure it is on earthly pleasures, on an earthly scale, it doesn't matter. We want more and we want more and more and more. Now, what does this lead to? We envy people because of this arrogant, self-righteous, self-deifying entitlement. What does that envy lead to? What is the fruit of envy? Well, Scripture describes a number of aspects of the fruit of envy. 1 Peter 2.1, for instance places envy in a cluster of sins that go together. And so 1 Peter 2, verse 1, Peter's talking here about the preparation that we should make before we come to hear the preaching of the Word. We talk about preparing for the Lord's Supper, but we should also be preparing ourselves to hear the preaching of the Word. The end of chapter 1 says, this is the Word that was preached to you, Then chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. So one of the things that's going to hinder your receiving and benefiting from the means of grace, specifically the Word of God preached and read, is envy. And it comes in a cluster of sins, as I said, with malice, that hatred, resentment toward people that have things that we want and we don't think they should have them. And we're competing with them and we have a rivalry and an ambitious spirit among the brethren like the disciples who every, all of them wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom and be at Jesus' right hand and his left hand. It's a cancer in the body of Christ. Peter says, lay it aside along with deceit, using deceit to undermine the good of others so that we can leapfrog them and get the things that we desire using deceit, hypocrisy, flattering other people, being fake with other people, and evil speaking go along with this sin as well. So you've got hypocrisy and evil speaking. So smooth as butter was his speech, but in his heart was war, the psalmist says. So we're fake with people, really nice, but then in private, we bring them down a few notches in our conversation. These are the, the sinful fruits of envy. Another passage, I won't mention the one in Romans 1 because God willing, we'll deal with that in our other series. But James chapter 3, verse 16 describes the fruit of envy, the, the sins, the additional sins that are produced by envy. James 3.16 For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So, in some sense, it's helpful to give specific examples of the sinful fruit of envy, but here James just speaks comprehensively. Watch out for envy and self-seeking because where those things exist... It's just going to be utter confusion in your Christian life, in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships, in your friendships, in society. Uh, We see a society that's just filled with confusion 
and every evil thing, and big surprise, envy is systemic in our societal mindset. And we need to be careful. James is warning Christians that where there's envy and self-seeking, there's going to be confusion and there's going to be all kinds of evil taking place as a result of that envy and that confusion. So let's take this very seriously. When we deify ourselves, when we become entitled and we think we deserve this and that, we think that we're entitled to it, and we think we know better than God as to how to distribute it, when we make ourselves gods, there's a battle of the gods. James continues on, James 4 verse 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. The conflicts taking place in the church, doesn't mention envy, but covetousness and murder and conflict. It's obvious that envy is involved here. It's because they all have this self-deified mindset. I'm entitled to what I deserve. I'm going to get it. I'm God. I want to satisfy myself. And when that self-seeking is there, all kinds of confusion, all kinds of evil, all kinds of conflict and war in the body of Christ. So we have to be very careful. When we, when we act like a god, don't be, we shouldn't be surprised if other people act like gods. And eventually, if everybody thinks they're their own god, you're, you're going to have this raging battle of the gods, which of course we see in our society. Fifthly, how is envy specifically contrary to love? Obviously, Paul is addressing the specific issue here of Christian love, love for God and love for others. In what sense is envy totally contrary to Christian love? Well, first let's think of love of God, the love that we have for God as Christians. Uh, We love God, and by the Holy Spirit's power, we're enabled more and more to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And how does envy undermine the love that we have for God? Well, Psalm 73, which I've already mentioned, and we've sung from it earlier in the service. Psalm 73 shows us how envy is entirely contrary to our love for God. In Psalm 73, Asaph is struggling with the prosperity of the wicked. He's struggling with the goodness of God because he looks at his experience, and at least from an outward earthly perspective, he doesn't feel like he's receiving good from God. He feels like the wicked are receiving good from God, and he has an earthly-minded outlook that he says, I was like a beast before you, Lord. He's like, like a beast. Uh, animals don't have souls. Animals don't enjoy spiritual blessings or communion with God. Uh, they, they enjoy food and so on and so forth, but they enjoy physical pleasures and blessings. And Asaph was thinking exclusively in terms of these outward earthly blessings. And he says, I was just like an animal. But now that I realize, now that I've come to the house of God, I I was tempted to envy the wicked. I envied the wicked, but I've come to the house of God. He says in verse 18 that he, he understood the eternal destruction of the wicked. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. So he saw that their blessedness or their earthly advantages and, and enjoyments were merely temporary, fattened up for the slaughter, for destruction. Those aspects of God's goodness ought to have led them to repentance, but it didn't. So they're in slippery places, and eventually they slip, they slide, they fall, and they're in hell for eternity. And so he's beginning to realize this eternal spiritual perspective. And he says even in this life, he he realizes the riches that he has in his relationship with God. It's not just about the here and the hereafter. But he says, verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. It's not just they're going to hell and I'm going to heaven, but even now, though they have all the outward advantages and riches, I have God. 
Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. So I have a relationship with God. The beasts don't have that. I have that. Dear believer, you have that. We have that. God is with us. He counsels us. He holds our right hand. He guides us. And when we die, absent from the body, present with the Lord, He receives us into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So he has God. God is his exceeding great reward. And there's nothing that God allows the wicked to enjoy in this life that in any way compares with that relationship, the love of God in Christ Jesus, which we cannot lose, which continually grows and develops in our lives as Christians. He says, verse 28, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Now, if we envy the wicked, if we're envying people who are going to spend eternity in hell, if we're envying people that don't have God now, they're not going to have God for eternity, so far as we know. We hope many of them are elect and they'll come to faith. But essentially, uh, we're envying people who don't have God as their portion. And we do have God. How can we say we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength if we envy the people that don't have Him? If we envy the people that don't have Him and all they have are these temporary pleasures and then they're going to spend eternity in God's judicial incinerator, eternal conscious torment in eternal fire, and we're envying them, we're envying the people that don't have God, we claim to love God as our portion and our inheritance. You see the hypocrisy. Asaph sees the hypocrisy. And it's his love for God that enables him to overcome envy In fact, it's our love for God that when envy comes calling, we can use as a shield. God is my exceeding great reward. And as he says to Abraham, I'm also your shield. He's our shield. That love for God, that satisfaction we have in God shields us from any temptation to envy the wicked. Now, we could envy the righteous. And that's an issue. And that's a concern. But at the end of the day, Psalm 37 tells us that if we have God and if we trust Him to give us what we need, the perfect allotment that we need, He won't give us more money than we can handle, right? Because that could lead us astray. If He gives us too much to take care of, if, if He gives us more than we can handle and we become proud and we become idolatrous with it, again, God knows perfectly exactly what we need. If we trust Him and we're faithful with what He has given us, then we will be perfectly content. And we don't need to compare ourselves with other Christians. Listen to Psalm 37. Uh, It is speaking here of unconverted, but it's still relevant. Verse 1, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. It even goes on to say that when God's people are in a famine, that He'll feed them. And he will be faithful to his people. The meek shall inherit the earth. We have nothing to fear. We don't need to fear the rise of wickedness in our culture. We don't need to fear what the wicked can do to the righteous when they leverage their positions of power and influence. We don't need to be envious of them because we have God as our shield and as our exceeding great reward. God is sovereign. Whatever He has denied us in terms of outward things, He's denied us with a purpose and with a plan to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. Whatever He's given to the wicked, it's either going to lead them to repentance or fatten them up for the judgment. But He's distributing all these things so we can trust in the Lord and forget about envy. We can do good. We can be faithful. Well done, 
good and faithful servant. I gave you a little and, and you multiplied it, Jesus says in the parable. You were faithful in a few things. You, you, you get more things. That's the way we need to operate. Because the fact is on judgment day, the more things that God has given to us as elders, the more sheep in our congregation, as heads of household, the more wealth, the more time, the more opportunities. To whom much is given, much is required. So on judgment day, we're not going to be thinking, oh, I wish we had a lot more members in the church in that sense. I wish I had more outward blessings, more money, more time, more leisure. Well, that would be more to give an account for as well. So trust that God gives you exactly what you need. No more and no less. And ultimately, if you love God, then you'll be content with God. But secondly, envy is contrary to our love for others. We read the passage from James 4, 1 and 2 that when we envy, when we compare ourselves to other people and begin to resent God's blessing in their lives, we begin to fight them. We begin to root against them. We begin to hope that bad things happen to them. Or if we don't do that, at least when bad things do happen, secretly we have some sense of joy or so on and so forth. It's, it's the ultimate undermining of love for our neighbor. We ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. We want to enjoy good things. We ought to rejoice when our neighbor re- enjoys good things. Uh, we ought to do unto others as, they would have, uh, as we would have them do unto us. We ought to love other people considering them as more important than ourselves, their concerns more significant than our own. Philippians 2, that's the mind of Christ. Jesus demonstrated His love in giving up Himself for His people. He loved His church and gave Himself up for her. Love is self-sacrificial. Love is not seeking to bring other people down and at their expense we move up and get the promotion. Love came down. Love made Himself poor that we might become rich. Love is self-sacrificial and for the good of others. And Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 12, a chapter that deals with Christian love toward the brethren and toward others. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. So that's contradictory to envy. Envy, I'm giving preference to myself in my ambition and my self-seeking. Let's pull somebody else down so that I can uh, you know, head to the top. But here, brotherly love gives preference to one another. I, I think one translation says uh, essentially outdo other people in showing honor. If you're going to try to outdo other people, outdo them in showing honor to them and deferring to their benefit. Like Abraham who let Lot pick first uh, in terms of the earthly inheritance in the land of Canaan and, and so on. He let Lot pick. And Lot chose foolishly, but Lot picked the land first though Abraham was superior to him in years. Abraham was his uncle, but he he, in honor, gave preference to Lot. In addition, in that same chapter, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We ought to have an interest in other people. And by that, what I mean is a vested interest. Uh, If you have a vested interest in a company and its stock goes up, that means your stock goes up, right? And so we should have a vested interest in our neighbor, but especially in our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, that if good things happen to them, we're rejoicing that good things happen. You know, if you have two single people in the church and uh, one of them gets engaged, right? There's a temptation maybe for the other one in this friendship to feel a little awkward and maybe be tempted to envy. But no, we should rejoice in those things. Rejoice when other people rejoice. And when other people are grieved, grieve with them, mourn with them, so that we're all linked together. In the body, when one part of the body hurts, the the, the whole body hurts. 
You know, I mean, it, it's impossible for you if, if your ankle, if you just twisted your ankle and it's throbbing with pain, it's impossible for you to enjoy the, the, uh, the pain-free nature of your finger. You know, your finger's not feeling any pain. But that doesn't really help. Your whole body's feeling the throbbing pain. You as an entire person are in pain. The fact that your finger doesn't hurt is not a consolation. So we need to have an invested interest in one another. And envy is entirely contrary to that aspect of Christian love. And as we'll see at the end of this chapter, faith, hope, and love abide. But love is the greatest. Love is the most abiding grace in the Christian life because it abides in a unique sense on into eternity. Heaven is a world of love. And in heaven, there will be different degrees of the enjoyment of God, different rewards in heaven, and they will all be commensurate with the life that we've lived as Christians by the grace of God. They'll be proportional in that way. But we will not grieve that somebody else has a greater enjoyment of God or a greater reward in in rejoicing in the Lord in heaven. Um, Their joy, their increased joy will increase our joy because we love them and we're happy that they're happy. And then they're happy that we're happy that they're happy that we're happy that they're happy. You know, it goes on and on. Eternal joy and blessedness. There's no envy in heaven. Sixth question. Why must we never underestimate the sin of envy. Why must we never underestimate the sin of envy? Well, we've already said that the very first sin in God's creation, the sin of Satan, involved envy. He envied God's superior position. I will be like the Most High. We know that Satan then, having fallen into that sin, came into the Garden of Eden and tempted Adam and Eve with envy. Uh, He tempted Eve to envy God. Here's God, He's made you, but He won't let you eat of this tree in the garden. He's unfair, He's trying to suppress your well-being. He's superior and He's not letting you become a God just like Him. And you should envy Him and you should take this fruit and eat it. Well, Adam and Eve fell into that sin and there there was an aspect of envy there. So we can say that the fall of mankind and all the misery and sin that has resulted from it uh, resulted in a sense from envy. Uh, The first murder, Cain killing Abel, was as a result of envy. But the, the worst of all is the crucifixion of Christ because we're told in Matthew 27 verse 18 that even Pilate understood that it was because of envy that the religious leaders delivered up Jesus. It was for envy that they delivered him up. Matthew 27, verse 18. The crucifixion of the Son of God was a crime of envy. They resented uh, the influence that Jesus had among the people and so forth. So we should be very concerned about the sin of envy. As I said, Romans 1 says that the, the final chaotic stage of cultural decline is marked by this, that they are filled with envy. Romans 1 and verse 29. Filled with envy. Uh, Galatians 5.21 says that envy is one of the works of the flesh that marks out a person who doesn't inherit the kingdom of God. So we need to be fighting this sin. If we're just letting envy run wild in our lives, then... Paul says that's not a fruit of the Spirit, that's a fruit of an unconverted heart. So we've got to take it very seriously. Envy would desire to cast our soul into hell. Envy brings forth confusion and all kinds of evil things. And in Proverbs 27 verse 4, we're told, Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent, but using the King James here, who is able to stand before envy? Or jealousy in the New King James. Who is able to stand? Envy is a formidable foe of your soul and of your happiness both now and for eternity. And it is a great foe of the Christian church. But what negative effects does envy produce? What negative effects does envy produce? Uh, Well, Job 5 verse 2 tells us that envy actually leads to death. So that's a pretty strong statement there. Proverbs 3, verse 31 says, Do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. One of the worst 
aspect of envy is that it actually tempts us to become like the person that we're envying. If we're envying the wicked, for instance, that envy can cause us to become exactly what we're resenting, the person that we're embittered against because they don't deserve it and they've done this and that. We can actually become, we can imitate the very person that we resent. And if it's a wicked person, this oppressor, we envy them and we become just like them. And you see this with feminism, right? Where you have women that are envying the position of men and in some cases these men are oppressors and they're evil and women are envying that and then oftentimes you see feminists and you look at them and you look at their agenda and you look at uh, some of the perverse things that take place uh, sexually with these people and you and you see they they actually they're envying wicked men they're envying oppressive men they want to be in the position of the oppressive man and, and really to oppress others and even oppress women in some respects. Again, not to get on that rabbit trail, but be careful. Envy may actually make you like the person that you resent in all the wrong ways. Proverbs 14, verse 30. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Envy will destroy you both in your soul and in your body. That resentment and that bitterness, which really you're, you're wanting to punish that person, you're actually punishing yourself, and you're probably giving yourself psychosomatic physical problems because maybe you're not getting sleep, maybe you're, you're just always stressed out, and the hormones in your body and the stress and all of these things, they're, they're destroying your body. Envy is, is a cancer in your soul. It's rottenness to the bones. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And it gives you peace of God that passes all understanding, contentment, joy in the Lord is your strength. And you can actually see, not to get into the health wealth or anything, but you can see there are health benefits to having contentment. And there are dangers physically to being a bitter and resentful person. Uh, Proverbs 24, verse 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. Now this, these verses are somewhat of a conundrum, because what it's saying is, don't rejoice when God brings judgment on your enemy, or God may remove the judgment from your enemy. And you're thinking, well, in a sort of simplistic, even jellyfish sort of way, well, if I really love the person, I want God's wrath to be taken from them. But you're missing the point. The point here is, this is a wicked oppressor who needs judgment to be rendered upon him or upon her. So we're not dealing with petty squabbles here. We're dealing with enemies. And what it's saying is, that don't rejoice when your enemy falls in an undue and sort of giddy way, mocking, and, and you should have a sense of the gravity of God's judgment, and you should be reverent and respectful when the judgment of the Lord falls upon a person who, who needs to be judged. Because if you gleefully rejoice in that person's judgment, the just judgment of God that is actually good and is restraining that person's evil and is good for you and for society, God may just say, well, fine, I'm going to let them loose to, to go back to their evil and damaging ways. So we need to be careful that we don't rejoice even when God Himself brings judgment upon an oppressor or upon an enemy. Very briefly, 1 Corinthians 12.25 says that when we rejoice with those who rejoice in the body of Christ and grieve with those who grieve, there's no schism in the body. So one of the surefire ways to produce schism in the body is for people to be comparing themselves with each other and competing and trying to gain the preeminence and the influence and the offices and, and making the decisions and people fighting and going back and forth competing with this spiritual ambition or unspiritual ambition, really, this creates schism and disunity and divisiveness in the body of Christ. So there are many negative effects of envy. We could, we could probably mention a half dozen others. 
But let's, let's finally uh, say something about this. What biblical truths help us to combat envy? If we're sanctified in the truth and God's word is truth, what are some biblical doctrines that will help us to overcome the temptation to envy? Now, let me just give you four brief attributes of God that you can meditate on. First, His sovereignty. God rules and reigns over the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. Daniel 4, verse 35. God's ways are past finding out. No one can say to Him, what have you done? God has sovereign freedom and authority and wisdom to distribute to everyone what they get and to decide every detail, every circumstance of everyone's life. And He is entitled to that. He is entitled to have the the discernment and the authority to determine those things. And we ought not to fight against it or quarrel against it. God is sovereign. God is the potter at the wheel. He's free to do as He pleases. He is sovereign. And when we have this sense of entitlement, entitled in what sense? How could we possibly have an entitlement? How could God owe us anything? We're told in Romans chapter 11, famously, verse 35, Who has first given to God and it shall be repaid to Him? Everything you have is from God. He sovereignly created you. He's overseeing your life. Every detail, every good and perfect gift is a gift from Him. And understand who has first given to Him that it should be repaid. God doesn't owe you anything or me anything. Secondly, God's justice. The wages of sin is death. If we're entitled to anything, it's eternal destruction in hell. So we need to stop having a sense of entitlement and recognize that instead of entitlement, we need to latch on to the gift of God, eternal life through Christ Jesus. If we want our wages, if we want our entitlements, then the curse of the law is upon us. The justice of God, the wages that you've earned, you want your entitlement, here it is. Hellfire and brimstone for eternity. But I think instead we should ask for the gift of God, which is eternal life through Christ. Thirdly, the goodness of God. The goodness of God. For God's people, He works all things together for our good. For those who love Him, those who say, Lord, whom have I in heaven but You? those who love Him, those who claim Him as their exceeding great reward. For those people, He works the good, the bad, and the ugly together for good. And we either believe that or we don't. We either believe that or we don't. If those are empty words, then we have an empty faith. Because that is what the Bible declares. He works it for good. And Psalm 34 comforts God's people. Verse 8 Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. There is no want, there is no lack to those who fear Him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. If God has kept something from you, you can continue to pray for it if it's a lawful desire, but if God has kept it from you at this very moment, then it's not good for you. Again, if those are empty words, the Bible's an empty book, Jesus is an empty Savior, and Christianity's an empty religion. Because that's the substance of it. That God knows what we need and He gives us every good thing. And if He doesn't give it to us at a given time, it wasn't good for, the, for us at that particular time. God is good. And in Him, in Christ, we have all things. We have all things. All things are ours. God will distribute that all, those all things in the right time, in the right way. But you say, yeah, but that doesn't comport, that doesn't align with my observation. So finally, the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. If you think that you know what your life should be like, if you think you know what God is even presently doing for your well-being, and you think it's inadequate, but you think you understand. Here's what God's done for me. The fact is, God does more for you in a given day than you will ever believe. He protects you from from more evils every single day than you could even fathom. If you think you have a wiser and more all consuming perspective of your life and of what God ought to be doing in your life, 
then, my friend, you're deceived. Romans 11, again, 34, verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Are you going to be his counselor? Are you going to be like Job and have to get taken to the woodshed and God tells you all the stuff that he does and that he knows? My friends, the wisdom of God. Do we trust him? Can we say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Do we trust him that our lives today as Christians are infinitely better than the alternative, that we partake of his goodness every single day. Do we trust that? Do we know that? Do we taste that? Do we see that in our Christian life? Well, as we do, we become more and more immune to the temptation of envy. The more we know God, the more we meditate upon who God is, his sovereignty, his justice, his goodness, and his wisdom. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would put a hedge round about us, a hedge of biblical truth to protect us from the serpent of old and his crafty temptations and devices. Enable us to know you as our sovereign, just, good, and wise God. Enable us to receive you through faith in Christ as our exceeding great reward and as our shield. We pray that we would be content with godliness and have that great gain. We pray that you would enable us to see our lives as half full rather than half empty. Indeed, that our cup would be running over with goodness and mercy, following us all the days of our lives, after which we look forward to the day when we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.